0: You're listening to the Matt Lupu Podcast. I'm Matt Lupu. I've always been struck by how important material objects inform one's sense of history. I remember being 10 years old and visiting Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. For any of you who haven't had the opportunity to go, the theater, which was the site of the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, is converted into a kind of living museum. On the one hand, they still perform plays there, including the very play that Lincoln was watching when all the unpleasantness happened. But on the other hand, tourists from all over the world come to visit the presidential box and Peterson House across the street to see the physical location and objects associated with the assassination, the blood-stained pillow that Lincoln's head rested on, his iconic stovepipe hat, the murder weapon itself, and the very bed that he died on. For a 10-year-old boy, having just learned about Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War in fourth grade history class, seeing all of this in person was quite an experience. I was connected to the time and place of the story of Lincoln, but maybe more importantly, I was also connected to the story of America. I felt like I had experienced a kind of a magic trick. All of the lessons about the evils of slavery and the horrible war to end it once and for all, they were real. And there was the proof right there in front of me. So you can imagine that when it came time for me to go to dental school in Boston, I was delighted by the idea of being in close proximity to all that Americana that I would surely find in the area. High on my list was Plymouth Rock. That's the spot where it all started, right? Indeed, if you head south from Boston, you can visit Pilgrim Memorial State Park and see Plymouth Rock in all its glory. The rock itself is carved with the date, 1620. It sits in a Doric-style temple not too dissimilar from the Lincoln Memorial, right up against the shore of Plymouth Bay. It all looks very impressive, but at the end of the day, it is just a rock. And it being just a rock, one wonders, how do we know, of all the rocks out there, that this is the exact rock? Maybe more importantly, how do we know that there was a rock at all? One of my first thoughts on seeing the rock was that this would be an utterly insignificant feature of the landscape, not at all worthy of remembrance. If I had just survived a transatlantic voyage in 1620, the last thing I would notice would be this rock. Nor would I particularly care where we had first touched land. Just the fact that I had made it at all would suffice, I think. So, since I just can't help myself, I had to get to the bottom of this story. It didn't take much effort to figure it all out. The story of Plymouth Rock is, as it turns out, a legend. None of the Pilgrims' actual accounts of their landing mention anything about a rock. The first time that anyone mentions Plymouth Rock is in 1741. The story goes that the town of Plymouth had plans to build a new wharf which would bury a boulder near the shore. Having heard about this plan, an elderly man named Thomas Founts protested vocally. He claimed that his father had pointed the rock out to him when he was a child and told him that it was the very spot where the pilgrims first landed. That was enough for the rest of the townspeople, and the rock has been venerated ever since. That is, of course, except for the times that it's been broken, moved, and carved. As the fame of the rock grew, its physical shape and size diminished. In 1774, it was moved from the shoreline to the town square of Plymouth, where it promptly broke in half. A large piece was broken off and placed in nearby Pilgrim Hall Museum in 1835. Today, there are bits and pieces of the rock all over the country, including in museums like the Smithsonian, but also in private hands. It wasn't until years later that I started to wonder about the implications of all this. It was my first trip to Greece as an archaeologist, and I was taking full advantage of my free access to the Acropolis of Athens. I hiked up the hill from the Agora just after we quit working for the day. The guards up there confiscated my trowel. I guess I understand. At any rate, when you walk up through the Propylaia, that is, the grand entryway to the temple complex at the top of the Acropolis, you are confronted with the Parthenon itself and the Erechtheion off to the left. The thing about the Erechtheion that makes such an impression are the columns holding up its large stone roof. They are shaped like women wearing flowing robes. These are the Caryatids, and on any tour of the Acropolis, you will hear the story of how Lord Elgin, a Scottish nobleman and British royal ambassador to the Ottoman Empire, stole one of them, took it back to England, along with a lot of other stuff from up there, and how the British government, right this second, doesn't want to give any of it back. Forgive me if you've heard this story before, but for those who haven't, I'll give you a little background, and maybe that would explain the situation a little bit better. You see, if you go back into antiquity, you will find that recycling and remaking Greco-Roman structures is a virtual constant. One can, in withering detail, describe all of the changes made to the archaic structure of the Acropolis era by era. The site has been occupied continuously since the Bronze Age, of course things are going to change. Even this very instant, the Acropolis is irrevocably changed. Those caryatids I mentioned earlier are all replicas. The originals are in the Acropolis Museum nearby, except for one which is currently housed in the British Museum. Why? Why wouldn't you put them all together someplace? Well, you see, the Acropolis hadn't been faring very well by the time that Thomas Bruce, the seventh lord of Elgin, was born in 1766. A mere 80 years before he was born, in 1687, as part of a series of wars between Europe and the Ottoman Empire, Athens found itself in the crosshairs. The Ottomans had occupied the Parthenon on top of the Acropolis and loaded it with gunpowder. Incidentally, they did this thinking that no one would dare fire a cannon into this building, given how significant it was in the western mind but they miscalculated, and a Venetian cannonball blew up half of the building. That's why famously you can see how the columns on the side of the building are particularly absent. After that episode of violent destruction, neither the Ottomans nor the Greeks alive at the time were particularly interested in repairing the building, or its upkeep. The only reason that it had survived into the 18th century at all was because it was converted from a pagan shrine into an Orthodox church, And then when the Turks took the city, a mosque. By the time Lord Elgin first visited, it was a ruin surrounding a much newer mosque. Now, none of that answers the question why Lord Elgin would want to take any of the sculptures away from these ruins. The answer to that question lies in a particularly British phenomenon called the Grand Tour. I don't mean to pick on the British here since the custom of the Grand Tour would eventually spread to other countries, but it seems to have gotten its start in England in the mid-17th century, right around the time that the Parthenon met with its unfortunate accident. The idea of the Grand Tour was to act as a kind of finishing school for young British aristocrats. Keep in mind that these were the days before a formalized education system. If you were a young aristocrat, your education— mostly in the classics but also a smattering of math and science, would be primarily at home on your estate until you were old enough to finally go on this trip as a kind of finishing school. What started as a cool trip eventually spread through the entire aristocratic class as a necessary signal to other aristocrats that you were in fact part of the club. If you've been listening to this podcast from the beginning then you'll remember from the intro episode that the way that I got suckered into the classics was by reading Edward Gibbon, the British aristocrat, statesman, and author who wrote The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Well, he was also a grand tourist in his youth, and he had this to say about the experience. Quote, according to the law of custom, and perhaps of reason, foreign travel completes the education of an English gentleman. How's that for a ringing endorsement? So what did these grand tourists do on their trip? Well, I'm glad you asked. Ostensibly, the experience was supposed to provide an opportunity for young aristocrats to have access to the great libraries of Europe. But in reality, the grand tourist only stopped briefly at them. Most of the time was occupied with introductions into the high society of whichever country they were currently visiting. A typical grand tourist would leave England for France and spend his time there learning French and cavorting with other aristocrats in Paris before continuing on to the Alps. After an arduous crossing, the first stop would be Turin. It wasn't uncommon to travel by coach with a retinue of servants and a so-called cicerone, or a local guide well-educated in Roman history and culture as well as Renaissance art. At each city the tourist approached, He would spend time in galleries taking the artwork of the renaissance masters as well as the remains of roman structures that were still standing in the age before regular rail and air travel you can imagine how spectacular a journey like this would have been it was truly a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience and given the constraints of aristocratic society it was imperative that the trip produced tangible results things like portraits of the young milord dressed in local fashions with the Italian countryside for a backdrop, but also sculptures, both modern and ancient. In fact, if you think about a Hollywood movie version of a gentleman's study, you might imagine a wall of bookshelves with a rolling ladder and perhaps a white marble bust used as a bookstop. The Grand Tour is where that stereotype comes from, Everyone who went needed a piece of Roman sculpture to decorate the drawing room or library back home in their great pile or country estate. It was like shorthand to any guest that you might entertain that you had been on the tour, but it was also a result of that very human desire to touch and hold the past. Those grand tourists buying busts of famous and anonymous Romans alike must have been feeling much the same feelings that I had looking at Lincoln's hat when I was ten. All the stories were true, and here was the proof. Now, imagine Lord Elgin's position. He never went on the Grand Tour, but he was certainly acquainted with the tradition and must have seen the results of several generations of Grand Tourists in the great houses of his peers. He had the usual aristocratic career. After his university education in Paris, he joined the military, where he served as an officer. From there, he began a diplomatic career, serving first as diplomat to Austria, then to Belgium, then Prussia. In 1799, he was appointed as ambassador to the Ottoman Empire. At this point, I should probably mention how extraordinary this opportunity would be for a Scottish aristocrat with an interest in education in the classics. The reason that the Grand Tour became popular in the mid-1600s, and not before, was because That was when the Peace of Munster was signed, ending the Eighty Years' War. That conflict was a revolt of seven provinces of the Netherlands against the Spanish Empire. And since the Netherlands held the main ports of entry into and out of continental Europe, if a Brit wanted to leave England for the continent during that 80-year span, it would have put him directly in the middle of a war zone. Now consider the state of diplomacy between the Ottoman Empire and the rest of Europe. The Ottoman Empire spanned from Algeria in the west, to the borders of Austria in the north, and to Iran in the east. This territory would be virtually impossible for a Westerner to visit. Unless, of course, you've been appointed as ambassador to the Ottoman Empire. I should make a little caveat here. As difficult as it was to travel from England to Ottoman territory at the time, there were other British people that managed to get into Ottoman Greece most famously, Lord Byron, the poet and hero of the Greek Revolution. Lord Byron attempted the usual itinerary of the Grand Tour, only to be forced away from most of Europe by the Napoleonic Wars. That, and a desire to flee his creditors, is what led him to travel into Ottoman territory. But I digress. Lord Elgin's diplomatic post was in Constantinople, the capital of the Ottoman Empire at the time before he left England for Constantinople. Lord Elgin asked the British government if they would be interested in hiring artists and architects to sketch and make plaster casts out of the remains of the Parthenon in Athens. From Lord Elgin's perspective, this quick detour would be of minimal effort and produce cultural and artistic rewards beyond imagining. The government, however, politely declined. So... Lord Elgin hired a team of artists himself. His chief artist was the Neapolitan court painter Giovanni Lucieri. The team went ahead of Lord Elgin and began documenting the remains of the Parthenon in the summer of 1800. For the first nine months, the artists were not allowed anywhere close to the Parthenon, nor the Acropolis. That's because the area was the site of the main garrison for the city. It was part army base and part religious complex, as the Turks had rebuilt the mosque in the center of the Parthenon. Also keep in mind that the entirety of the Acropolis was inhabited at the time, with several houses having sprung up on the site over the centuries. Had Elgin not been in his position as British ambassador to Constantinople, and had Napoleon won the war, what happened next would probably have been impossible. You see, the Turks were heavily courting the British Empire at the time, given that the Napoleonic Wars didn't seem to be going particularly well for the French, and, up until this time, the French were the main European allies of the Turks. One of the various gifts that the Sultan gave to Elgin, to help convince him to cement an alliance between the two powers, was a firman, that is, a royal permission to allow Elgin's artists to make plaster casts of and draw the Parthenon friezes and associated sculptures still standing and attached to the building. When Elgin's agent arrived in Athens with the firman, he presented it to the voivode, or the military governor of Athens. He, in turn, allowed Elgin's men to do whatever they wanted. This part is particularly controversial. In the aftermath of all of this, Elgin claimed that he only got the idea to take sculptures off the building when they first arrived in Athens in 1802. He said that he was horrified by the way that the Turks had treated the Parthenon, and that he decided then and there that he was not so much stealing the sculptures to decorate his study at his country estate, as much as he was rescuing them for all of Western civilization. That might sound a little bit like putting lipstick on a pig. But he has a point. After the Venetians blew up the Parthenon, the Turks used a lot of the marble fragments in other building projects, or even lit them on fire and then ground them up for mortar. Worse still was that the sculptures were vulnerable to attack from other tourists. It wasn't just the British that were enamored with classical sculpture of the 5th century. Lots of other nobles from other European countries also wanted their own piece of antiquity. The Turks, who didn't really care one way or the other about the history of Greece, were known to allow wealthy tourists to take a piece of sculpture here and there in exchange for a little bakshish. That's how you say tip in Turkish. The only real problem I see with Elgin's explanation is that the removal of the sculpture started in 1801, a year or so before he ever landed in Athens. There's also the problem that Lord Elgin very seriously considered demolishing the Erechtheon and having it rebuilt on his lands block by block. In fact, the only reason he didn't actually go through with it was because he couldn't find a big enough ship to take all the blocks back. We'll get to how he brought all the other stuff back in a moment. At any rate, Elgin's people took down quite a bit of the building. They took all of the sculpture from the west pediment, that is to say, the sculptures that were sitting in the triangular part of the roof. They took 15 metopes. Metopes are those sculptural bits that surround the roof of the temple. They also took about 75 meters or 250-ish feet of the Parthenon frieze. The frieze is the ring of sculpture just below the metopes. And of course, since he couldn't take the whole Erechtheion, he settled on that one caryatid. Don't worry, though. He left a pile of bricks in its place so the roof wouldn't fall down. As you might imagine, getting all these sculptures onto a boat would be difficult, especially given how long the Parthenon is and therefore how long the frieze was. But Lord Elgin's people had a solution. They would saw the straight course of the frieze into more manageable chunks. Of course, all this damage is quite irreversible. The next step in taking all this sculpture back home would be to bring them all down from Athens to the port of Piraeus, which is not too far away. That part was easy. The hard part was getting anyone to agree to load tons of marble onto a wooden sailing ship to then brave the Mediterranean Sea in the winter. Elgin's people divided their haul into several smaller loads. One such load was put onto a ship called the Mentor which promptly struck a rock off the coast of Kythera in southern Greece and sank with 14 pieces of the Parthenon frieze on board. It would cost Elgin a fortune to salvage those pieces of the Parthenon off of the ocean floor two years later. Speaking of fortunes, this whole operation would end up costing Elgin somewhere north of 70,000 pounds sterling, which translates to about 9.2 million U.S. dollars in today's money. When Elgin eventually went broke from a combination of this adventure and his divorce, he tried to sell his collection to the British government to recoup the cost. The British Museum wound up buying the marbles from him for a mere £35,000. So much for Lord Elgin. As for the marbles, they're still in the British Museum. For a long time after, it made sense that they shouldn't be repatriated to Greece. Firstly, The Greeks would only get their independence from the Ottomans in 1833. For quite some time after that, the Greek economy was ruined. During this period, the Brits could argue legitimately that they were keeping the marble safe. It should also be noted here that during the Greek War for Independence, the Ottomans would once again use a famous building on the Acropolis as a gunpowder store. This time, it was the Erechtheon. At one point the besieged Turks on the Acropolis tried to strip the lead out of the remaining columns on the Acropolis to cast more bullets. The Greeks famously offered the Turks some of their own if it would stop them from further destroying the complex. Eventually, when things had settled down, the Greeks would build a museum for all of the monuments on the Acropolis, but only in 1874. But things did settle down, and England sort of lost their right to credibly claim that they were in fact protecting the Elgin marbles. A few different attempts were made at cleaning the Elgin marbles. In 1838, Michael Faraday, the famous scientist who invented the Faraday cage and discovered benzene, was asked by the British Museum if he could invent any way to clean up the Elgin marbles and restore their original white luster. You can't see me doing it, but I'm using air quotes for original, because we know from multiple other examples that all the Elgin marbles would have been painted in various shades of blues and reds, but whatever. Faraday first used a sponge and soft cloth to get rid of all the coarsest dirt. Then he used abrasive powder and rubbed it into the marble, which quickly discolored it. After that, he tried a series of chemicals. Let's listen to what he actually had to say. In his own words, he used, quote, alkalis, both carbonated and caustic. These quickened the loosening of the surface dirt, but they fell far short of restoring the marble surface to its proper hue and state of cleanliness. I finally used dilute nitric acid, and even this failed. The examination has made me despair of the possibility of presenting the marbles in the British Museum in that state of purity and whiteness which they originally possessed. But maybe the most egregious attempt to... Clean, the marbles, was made in 1937. At that time, Lord Joseph Duveen, an influential art dealer, decided to finance a new gallery to display the Elgin marbles. He ordered a group of masons working on the project to physically scrape off the patina that the marbles had naturally acquired over the centuries, again, so that they would be a more brilliant white when they were displayed in their new gallery. This little episode resulted in yet more damage to the marbles. Now, I don't want to come off as being too harsh on the Brits. You see, back in Athens, the remaining sculpture, not taken by Lord Elgin, didn't really fare much better. Years of acid rain and pollution resulted in heavy damage to them as well. At a certain point, it became clear that if the remaining sculptures were to be preserved, they would have to be removed from the remains of their buildings, and put inside a museum. The Greek government started restoring the Acropolis in 1975, and they've never stopped. In 1993, the Greeks removed the remaining sections of the West Parthenon Frieze and put them in the Acropolis Museum. Now, the big question. Should the Elgin marbles be returned to Greece? My first instinct is to say, yes, of course they should, the British government for a long time argued that the Greeks didn't have an adequate museum space to display all the marbles taken from the Acropolis, nor did they have the technical expertise to care for them if they were to be returned. In response to that argument, the Greeks built a new Parthenon museum to the tune of $175 million, which opened in 2009. It is a truly spectacular museum, let me tell you. Of course, none of that swayed the Brits, and they still insist that the marbles stay in the British Museum. It was on that same trip in 2016, walking around that new Acropolis Museum, that I think I identified a new wrinkle in the ongoing controversy between England and Greece. I had just been to the Byzantine Museum earlier that day, not too far away, and found a whole other set of Parthenon marbles there. Those marbles date from the time when the Parthenon was a Greek Orthodox church. They were still on the Parthenon at the time of the Greek War for Independence. As it turned out, it was the first king of the newly freed modern Greek state that had them removed. After the Greek Revolution, Otto I was installed as the first king of Greece by a group of the so-called great powers of Europe, specifically England, Germany, and France. He was a member of the Bavarian royal family, and it was he who moved the capital of the New Greek Republic from Nafplio to Athens, which, at the time, was a small city of about only 5,000 residents. Otto, who was born right at around the time that Lord Elgin was desperately attempting to sell his marbles to the British Museum, had all of the same prejudices about ancient Greece as everyone else did in his generation. For him, the Acropolis of Athens was only pure if it contained the 5th century buildings and adornments and nothing else. So he demolished the remains of the Ottoman minaret still visible at the site, as well as all the houses that had sprung up from the medieval period, and anything else that wasn't part of the ideal of classical Greece. He did all of this as part of his desire to found a new nation that would be the inheritors of the millennia-old democratic tradition that the Parthenon represented. Never mind that the state was orthodox, and never mind that almost nobody in the country felt any particular connection to the 5th century B.C. In short, he was looking to point to a national symbol. His very own Plymouth Rock, if you will. I'm Matt Lupu. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please be sure to like and subscribe on YouTube, and remember to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again.